Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing with our set of ideas and discussions. Last time we talked about spirit birth and the various views that have arisen over the evolution of the idea, and we also emphasize strongly that according to most scholars, Joseph Smith did not teach that spirits were born, but to the contrary, that God cannot create spirits in any manner and that spirits are eternal. Today, I'm going to talk about the mother in heaven idea, and I'm going to present a case for it, and then point by point, I'm going to present a case against it as well. Primarily, I'm drawing on sources from Terrell Givens' chapter in his book Wrestling the Angel about Mother in Heaven, and an article by Robert M. Bowman Jr., who is not a Mormon, but he researched and has some points that I believe are quite valid that make a case against a belief in a Mother in Heaven, or at least the current form of the beliefs that we have in a Mother in Heaven. So, in Wrestling the Angel, Terrell Givens kind of lays out argument like this. So first he traces the idea of the divine feminine or a feminine god in ancient Israel, and he says, pre-exilic Israel is now widely regarded as worshipping a female consort of Yahweh called Asherah. William Deaver, for example, considers her to be extremely important in Israel's folk religion. Basing his arguments on biblical references to Asherah and Asheroth, Graffiti mentioning Yahweh and his Asherah, and archaeological evidences. Worship of the deity is condemned in Jeremiah, and her priests are mentioned alongside Baal's in the story of Elijah's contest at the altar. Though, he notes, intriguingly, the worshippers of Asherah are not condemned alongside the priests of Baal. Apparently, her worship was widely tolerated until the reforming kings of the 7th century. Eventually, of course, Hebrew monotheism was purged of competing gods as well as putative consorts. So he points to ancient Israel as, you know, maybe the beginnings of the idea of worshipping a female deity. And then he kind of traces the idea in Christianity where, at least over in America, there was some idea of a divine feminine with the Shakers and some other religious movements that were happening at the time, but they didn't quite think of it exactly as a literal mother in heaven, more like God was dual gendered, that he was, he had, not he, I guess, whatever, because most people don't believe that God has a physical body, and therefore the force of God is both a male force and female force all at the same time. And in the New Testament, as well as some interpretations, Christ is viewed in more of a motherly way. You know, Christ himself refers to himself as like a mother hen gathering her chicks and things like that. So that's sort of where the idea ideas were centering around in early America. So then he goes on to talk about his case for Heavenly Mother and how we came to believe in it. And he states, Tracing the origins of Mormon belief in a Heavenly Mother is difficult, but may have developed out of language appearing in Smith's revelation on celestial marriage. Though not published as part of the scriptural canon until 1876, his 
July 12, 1843 pronouncement on the subject contains the promise that in the eternal worlds, married and sanctified women who enter into their exaltation in the highest kingdom of heaven will, quote, bear the souls of men, unquote. So that's from section 132. The syntax of the sentence makes the meaning a little ambiguous. The wives referred to are given unto a husband to multiply and replenish the earth, and for their exaltation in the eternal worlds that they may bear the souls of men. Whether the bearing refers to replenishing this earth or an activity in the eternal worlds is unclear. In any case, the same revelation guaranteed to the exalted a continuation of the seeds forever, which Mormons have consistently read as a reference to post-mortal procreation. And listeners at the time believed Smith was teaching a doctrine of spirit procreation. Franklin D. Richards reported on a sermon a few days later wherein Smith referred to eternal contracts that led to the multiplication of lives in the eternal worlds. Richards concluded, I deduce that we may make an eternal covenant with our wives, and in the resurrection claim that which is our own, and enjoy blessings and glories, peculiar to those in that condition, even the multiplication of spirits in the eternal world. So Givens goes on, If Smith, in this revelation, and thereafter linked the bearing of souls, or a continuing progeny, seed, in the eternal worlds, with the condition and status of gods, the implication is present that humans were themselves conceived and created as the spirit progeny of just such a heavenly mother. But again, as we went over last time, pretty consistently Joseph Smith did not teach that there's a birth of the spirit. Anyway, in his footnotes he notes, Jonathan Stapley, and also I would add my father Blake Osler, considers vivivaporous spirit birth, or that just means, you know, like literal physical birth, he considers it a wildly popular folk belief, and argues that the continuation of seeds refers to a retention of kinship rather than continuing child creation. And again, my dad would agree with that. But, Given says, the strong biblical connotations of seeds with procreation, however, makes that reading unlikely. All right, and then to cite or trace the history of the idea, he goes over the history of the written documents, at least. So, W.W. W. Phelps has the earliest references to a mother in heaven, as far as the records show. So, he had a letter and a poem in which he refers to the Queen of Heaven. Um, it was turned into a hymn in 1844. This is actually less than five months before Joseph Smith was killed. But anyway, the hymn is called A Song of Zion, and it contains this line. "'Tis like a little leaven the woman hid for good "'when she, as queen of heaven, in gold and of Ophir stood.'" So the reference to a woman who was the queen of heaven it sounds like a reference to Heavenly Mother, since he used this expression for a mother in heaven in other writings later. Anyway, this is actually a reference to Psalm 45, where it talks about appointing of a son as a king and Phelps interprets that to be when Christ was appointed our Savior, even though scholars would not agree with that, but that's how he interpreted it at the time. So that says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness 
above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory places whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. So Velps interprets that as referring to a heavenly queen, but that's definitely, no, debatable. Anyway, and then Phillips composed another hymn later that was published in January 1845 titled Come to Me, which is about seven months after Joseph Smith's death. And his hymn refers to a mother in heaven hears as Come to me, here's the mystery that man hath not seen. Here's our father in heaven and mother, the queen. And then he wrote a letter to Joseph Smith's younger brother, William Smith, commenting on some of the details about these, the idea of a mother in heaven. He says, O Mormonism, thy father is God, thy mother is the queen of heaven, and so thy whole history from eternity to eternity is the laws, ordinances, and truth of the gods, embracing the simple plan of salvation, sanctification, death, resurrection, glorification, and exaltation of man from infancy to age, from age to eternity, from simplicity to sublimity. Christ hated sin and loved righteousness. Therefore, he was anointed with holy oil in heaven, so again, referencing the Psalm 45, and crowned in the midst of brothers and sisters, while his mother stood with approving virtue and smiled upon a son that kept the faith as the heir of all things. In fact, the Jews thought so much of this coronation among gods and goddesses, kings and queens of heaven, that they broke over all restraints and actually began to worship the queen of heaven, according to Jeremiah. There he's noticing that in the book of Jeremiah, it vehemently condemns worshipping a queen of heaven. Anyway, so Givens notes that Phelps was a close associate and occasional ghostwriter of Joseph Smith in this period, and as Samuel Brown has written, he tended to publicize key Mormon developments years before they were officially announced or developed. All right, the next significant development comes from Eliza R. Snow. This is probably the most famous in her poem, My Father in Heaven, which later became a hymn known as Oh My Father. So, as most know, the poem includes these lines. I had learned to call thee Father through thy spirit from on high, but until the key of knowledge was restored I knew not why. In the heavens are parents single? No, the thought makes reason stare. Truth is reason, truth eternal, tells me I've a mother there. When I leave this frail existence, when I lay this mortal by, Father, Mother, may I meet you in your royal court on high? Then in 1893, six years after Eliza R. Snow had passed away, Wilfred Woodruff, the time was the fourth president and living prophet of the church, indicated that she had received the hymn as a revelation. He said, That hymn is a revelation, though it was given unto us by a woman, Sister Snow. There are a great many sisters who have the spirit of revelation. There is no reason why they should not be as inspired as men. And then two years later, Joseph F. Smith insisted that although Eliza R. Snow may have been inspired to produce the hymn, the idea of Heavenly Mother that it expressed must have originated as a revelation to Joseph Smith. And that's where she learned it from. So that's the popular belief there, that that's, she learned it from Joseph Smith, because Eliza R. Snow is actually one of Joseph Smith's plural wives. And then the next evidence is Susa Young Gates. So according to Susie Young Gates, she had a friend who had died about 10 years before the statement was given, Zena Baker Huntington, whose mother had died in 1839, and then she 
and Zena had a conversation with Joseph Smith, and she asked if she would be reunited with her mother after this life, and she claimed Joseph Smith said, More than that, you will meet and become acquainted with your eternal mother, the wife of your father in heaven. And she asked him, And have I then a mother in heaven? exclaimed the astonished girl. You assuredly have. How could a father claim his title unless there was also a mother to share that parenthood? Givens goes on and says, A literal heavenly mother who bears human souls clearly suggests a literal heavenly father who sires them. And he claims in chapter 17 of his book, he says that Smith expressed views that alternated between spirit adoption and literal spirit birth. However, within months of his death, meaning Joseph Smith's, God's fatherhood became literalized in tandem with the development of the theology of a mother in heaven. That step was apparently taken, or at least made public, by the Pratts, who were always opposed to spiritualizing the scriptures in any case, meaning they wanted everything to be literal, they didn't like any meta saying the scriptures were metaphorical or anything like that, so they're like, well, if it says Heavenly Father, then he must literally be our father, and if he's a father, then clearly a father has to have a mother. So they, they elaborated a version of literal spirit birth that Brigham Young and subsequent Mormon leaders endorsed. Families, divine relationality, the deification of women, the eternal nature and value of gender, and the shared lineage of gods and humans. That's from a mother there, which is a survey of the historical teachings, or at least public teachings, of LDS leaders by David Paulson and some other people. All right, so now the case against it. So most of this is taken from the article by Robert M. Bowman Jr., which I'll link in the notes. So first thing he cites is it's not in Scripture. I'll just breeze over this. Basically, you know, there's traditionally ancient Israel as well as Christianity is a monotheistic religion, meaning that there's always been one God, and most Christians take God being our father as more literal, meaning, you know, he's like our father in the closeness and intensity of the relationship, but not literally. Obviously, LDS have taken that a different direction. But the only references in Scripture to a female deity, this Asherah, are actually to condemn the worship of such deity as idol worship, as a competing god like Baal. And then he talks about W.W. W. Phelps. So we, we mentioned the history of how W.W. W. Phelps was probably the first one to actually have anything published about the idea of Mother in Heaven. So he says, W.W. W. Phelps is undoubtedly the author of the earliest references to a Mother in Heaven. He seems to have expressed the idea in a veiled way a few months before Joseph's death, but made it explicit in writings produced a few months afterwards. David Paulson thinks that Phelps presented the doctrine matter-of-factly, as if commonplace, not novel, implying that this points to Joseph Smith as the source of the doctrine. However, since Paulson admits that there is absolutely no record of Joseph ever teaching the doctrine of a mother in heaven, the idea clearly was not commonplace in 1844 or 1845. In actuality, Phelps did not present the doctrine in a matter-of-fact way. His first reference to the idea is an oblique, enigmatic statement in a poem. His second poetic mention of a heavenly mother refers to the idea as, quote, the mystery that man hath not seen, unquote, indicating, if anything, the novelty of the claim. No doubt Phelps viewed Joseph's teachings as the source of the ideas in his poems, and he even introduced his poem, Come to Me, with the words, 
a voice from the prophet. This is not inconsistent with Phelps having extrapolated from Joseph's teachings a conclusion Joseph Smith himself had not articulated. So meaning he's reading into some of Joseph Smith's teachings and then making some assumptions that may or may not have been supported by the prophet. And then he goes on, In short, although the point cannot be proved definitely, the evidence strongly suggests that W.W. Phelps was the Mormon thinker who originated the idea of a mother in heaven, not Joseph Smith or any prophet. Right next, he touches on Eliza R. Snow. So I already basically told her story. Now I'm going to tell you kind of a little bit more context about her story and kind of how all of the accounts of where it came from are not firsthand, far removed from history, and embarrassingly, the idea that she got it from Joseph Smith actually is kind of a sexist idea that is saying that she couldn't have come up with it herself or received the revelation. Anyway, we'll go over all that. So he says, in 1893, six years after Eliza had passed away, Wilfred Woodruff indicated that she had received the hymn as a revelation. As I read earlier, that hymn is a revelation, though it was given unto us by a woman, Sister Snow. There are a great many sisters who have the spirit of revelation. There is no reason why they should not be as inspired as men. So you can notice that generally it wasn't understood that women would be receiving revelation like this. Two years later, Joseph F. Smith insisted that although Eliza may have been inspired to produce the hymn, the idea of a heavenly mother that it expressed must have originated as a revelation to Joseph Smith, not to Eliza. I mean, and listen to his reasoning. Our Heavenly Father has never yet, to my knowledge, revealed to this church any great principle through a woman. God revealed that principle, of a mother in heaven, to Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith revealed it to Eliza Snow, his wife, and Eliza Snow was inspired, being a poet, to put it into verse. If we give anybody on earth credit for that, we give it to the prophet Joseph Smith. But first of all, we give it to God, who revealed it to his servant, the prophet. So, Joseph F. Smith's assertion does not appear to have been based on historical knowledge, since he offered no information on how, when, or where Joseph Smith first articulated the doctrine, because, if you recall, Joseph F. Smith was five years old when his father Hiram and his uncle Joseph Smith were killed in 1844. Rather, Joseph F. Smith's assertion was based on the dogmatic principle generally accepted in Mormonism at the time, that God does not reveal important new doctrinal truths to women, since he made his claim 50 years after Snow wrote her hymn, and since his claim appears to have been based on a dogmatic understanding of how doctrine is revealed, no weight can be placed on it. All right, his next point is, Heavenly Mother was not taught by Joseph Smith. So as we already pointed out in the last podcast, Joseph Smith consistently taught that spirits are eternal and had no beginning, not that there was a spirit birth. That idea did not come from Joseph Smith. It may have come from people thinking that they were just logically following where he was going from some of his teachings and maybe some confusion about section 132, but Joseph Smith himself did not hold this idea as far as any evidence suggests. So he says, LDS scholar Kevin Barney has written, aside from all doctrinal and scriptural inferences, the primary reason we believe in a mother in heaven is that her existence was revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith. But then, It's pointed out, well, in fact, however, the concept of a heavenly mother was never part of the teaching of Joseph Smith. One LDS scholar acknowledges, in the writing and recorded discourses of Joseph Smith, there is no mention of a mother in heaven. However, the 2015 LDS.org article, he's referring to the 
essays that came out, this one on the Mother in Heaven, goes on to assert that some early Latter-day Saint women recalled that he personally taught them about a mother in heaven. So some Latter-day Saint women focus on that. So he says, the evidence for this claim is quite thin since it derives not from some early LDS women, but from at most one such woman, and her testimony comes third hand. In 1911, Susie Young Gates, who we mentioned before, daughter of Lucy Bigelow Young, Brigham Young's 22nd wife, wrote about something that she said she and others had heard from Zena Diantha Huntington Jacobs Young. So this is, I heard my friend say, Zena was one of Joseph Smith's plural wives and later was Brigham Young's 33rd wife. According to Sousa, Zena, who had died 10 years earlier in 1901, before this comment was made, so this is already 10 years removed from her remembrance of a friend saying something, told about a conversation she had with Joseph Smith after her mother, Zena Baker Huntington, had died in 1839. In that conversation, Joseph had told Zena Diantha that she would be reunited not only with her earthly mother after death, but also with her heavenly mother. Again, the quote is, More than that, you will meet and become acquainted with your eternal mother, the wife of your father in heaven. And have I then a mother in heaven? exclaimed the astonished girl. You assuredly have. How could a father claim his title unless there were also a mother to share that parenthood? So that's the quote. But this testimony comes 72 years after the supposed event and is third-hand testimony. Again, it's from Joseph Smith, supposedly, to Zena Young, to Sousa Young Gates. The best one can say is that Sousa's testimony is possible, though very weak evidence for the claim that Joseph Smith privately held to the idea of a heavenly mother. Joseph's teachings in the King Follett Discourse and in the Sermon in the Grove, in his two most famous speeches toward the end of his life in 1844, furnished much of the doctrinal basis for the idea. Joseph taught in the King Follett Discourse that God the Father had been a mortal man and that he had become exalted to Godhood, and that human beings were meant to follow in the same path as Heavenly Father had and to become gods themselves. In the Sermon at the Grove, Joseph further taught that Heavenly Father himself had a father who was his God. In that speech, Joseph asked rhetorically, Wherever was there a son without a father? And where was there ever a father without first being a son? By this same reasoning, of course, one might well imagine early Mormons reasoning that since there has never been a son without a father and a mother, it follows that we must have a heavenly mother as well as a heavenly father. And, indeed, this is precisely what Mormons argued very soon after Smith's death. So he goes on to kind of conclude that heavenly mother is a doctrinal deduction and not a revelation. He says, the appeal to reason shows that the idea of a heavenly mother is simply inferred to be true on the assumption that God is our father in the literal sense, that he procreated us as his literal offspring. The mother in heaven concept was a logical and natural extension of a theology which posited both an anthropomorphic God who had once been a man and the possibility of eternal procreation of spirit children, which is a quote from Terrell Gibbons. Other Mormon leaders have repeated this idea that the doctrine of a mother in heaven is to be accepted because it is a reasonable inference from the belief in a literal heavenly father. For example, Gordon B. Hinckley, speaking in General Conference, asserted, Logic and reason would certainly suggest that if we have a father in heaven, we have a mother in heaven. 
that doctrine rests well with me. To the contrary, reason would suggest that if we had a heavenly mother, if it were as important for us to know about her as Mormon doctrine indicates, and if our heavenly father revealed himself to us, and inspired thousands of pages of scriptural texts, then he would also reveal to us something about Heavenly Mother as well. Yet, although God the Father has revealed himself and inspired the Bible, and Mormons would add their additional scriptures, he has told us absolutely nothing about a Heavenly Mother. The reasonable conclusion is that there is no Mother in Heaven. So that's his conclusion. And as we've talked about, if it is a logical conclusion that if we are spiritually born, then clearly we have to have parents that birthed us, and a heavenly father that sired us, and then a mother that birthed us. But again, Joseph Smith didn't seem to have that in mind. He had more in mind that there's a head god, and he noticed that he was greater than all the other intelligences that were self-existing, eternal existing beings, and that he instituted a plan so that the others could advance like himself. So instead of birthing them and then presenting the plan to them, he basically gathered followers that wanted to be like he was, and then presented the plan. And kind of, maybe if he's the father, it's more through like an adoption, or through the idea of, you know, we become the followers or adherents to the teachings of the father. So that seems to be more what Joseph Smith had in mind. And those that extrapolated the idea from some other ideas seem to have not understood what he said, or had their own ideas. And as we talked about last time, you know, that's a little confusing. But that is kind of the situation that we're in. So anyway, again, there's the general case for a mother in heaven that's been laid out. And then I went over some of the points that, no, they're not necessarily clear-cut as they're portrayed. And I'm not saying that there's not a heavenly mother, but the foundation that the belief is based on is rather shaky at best, which is the idea of a spirit birth. And if there is no spirit birth, then there's no really logical need for a mother in heaven, because we don't need a literal mother if we're not literally born. But I'm not saying that people can't believe that, and I'm not decided on whether I believe that or not, but I am open to it. Anyway, for the next segment, I want to talk to both my father about his further ideas on that and ask him a few questions, and then I actually wanted to bring my sister, Karina, on, because, you know, it's kind of interesting having a, a bunch of men talk about this idea of a divine feminine. So I wanted to get a female perspective on that. So we'll talk about these things with her as well. And that's where we'll go next. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.